you have to find a way to communicate clearly, transparently, and no lies. That's very important. People, like a small lie would just crash a multi-million dollar transaction. I'm telling you, like, just small lies, they're like the worst. So <laughs> I feel like we could like take that advice into like every other aspect of your life. Hey? Like, you know how how good is a small lie in a marriage? Not very oh good. Oh my god, it's a small lie that crushes the big thing. Because why lying about small things? You're definitely hiding something. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. What's the real power of leverage? People think real estate is all about leveraging capital. Money is important, but what about the decisions we make? The things we do and don't do determine our success as investors. Choices and actions create success. Before we get to the bank, we make choices guided by mindset and by the things we do and don't know. If we want to succeed as investors, we need to leverage knowledge. We need to increase what we know so our actions pay bigger dividends. Join host Terry Schauer and Jean-Philippe Claude for conversations with leading experts in the real estate field. From mortgages to mindset, and from macroeconomics to local market trends. Grow your knowledge capital with us. Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast, where we seek advice to help us make better investing decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. So I have the honor today, not only of having our guest, Nick Slobodniak, on with us, but I also have a new co-host, Axel Monsignon. And Axel is a real estate investor who actually graduated from the club, I guess, maybe in the in the past a year and a half. And he's also the host of the show, The Very Real Estate Effect. And so we're lucky to have him on board, at least for the next little while to help us continue the show. So Axel. Hey, well, thank you very much, Terry. It's an honor to be here. The club has uh, given me a lot and it's a great way to give back. So thank you for the participation. So today we have Nick Slobodinik from PMML. Nick, you're a senior broker. You've been with the firm now for four years. You've closed tens of millions of dollars of transactions. And the reason for today is because you've been known for your negotiation skills. So we were hoping to hear a little bit more about it. Maybe you could share some tricks and tips on how to connect with people to really create win-win situations. Beautiful. Thank you guys for having me here. Axel, Terry, thanks a lot. It's a great opportunity to express the passion of my profession. And uh, certain people call this negotiation, but honestly, what I do is just communicating better than most of the people for a single purpose. It's to get along. It's to listen, to be understood and uh, to get things flowing, you know, so negotiation have this kind of connotation to be aggressive, trying to take something out of someone's hands. We don't do that here. You know, we're trying to be diplomatic and polite. So having done millions in transactions, you know, we develop a good approach with different kinds of people. You know, there's old guys that want to sell the place. There's young people, they want to sell, you know, they have different kind of people. So you kind of have to be able to communicate clearly with them. So yeah, here I am. And as you said, like there's so many different personalities that come with backgrounds and experiences and selling a piece of real estate can be very intimidating. And depending on the experience of the buyer and the seller, the communication is absolutely key. So maybe to start with, is there some way that you've kind of developed where you can kind of like frame the person that you're negotiating with? Yeah, sure. I have a few points, you know, like, I don't know if uh, it's going to be basic information or more in depth for people that have experience, probably they know this, but I hope uh, some things is going to come out that 
actually could have a positive impact on you. And if you retain one thing that can help you get along in the next transaction, well, be it. I'll be happy that that happens. <laughs> Just one thing. <laughs> but I have a few. So, all right. There is always the other person perspective. When you find a person that you want to get into transaction with, you have to understand their perspective. And we're talking a lot about motivation, what drive the other person to sell. But you have to remember one thing. It's not logic that gets you the deal. It's the emotions that you try to avoid or fulfill to the other person that gets you to the deal. And logic will justify them making a good decision. So just for an example, you get into a communication with a vendor who is tired of deserving tenants. Well, you know, his emotion, and Terry knows it well, she, she wrote a wonderful book on management. It yeah. takes a lot of patience. So some people don't have that patience. Some people have bad relationship with their tenants. So you have to find out why, with whom, and if he sells to you, is he going to be liberated? So emotions get you into the door, but logic will keep you in. That's first thing. The other thing I'd like to share is I'm always trying to be perceived as a fair businessman. Okay. I'm not considering myself only a broker because I have a license. I'm dealing with people with uh, high equity, big egos, and they want you to understand the game. So you're kind of a middleman and you have to be fair. You have to be fair. If you perceived not being fair in a transaction, the transaction is not going to go through. Right? So how to be fair in a transaction? A simple rule of thumb is always asking or proposing, listen, Mr. George, you know, we're here discussing the price again. I want me to be fair with you. If ever I'm not fair with you, please let me know, okay? Because you want him to speak up when he doesn't feel he's getting what he wants because that's going to get you into the conversation or how to find a solution to the issue and not just him closing up and not talking to you back and not replying to you because he thinks you're not fair and is not able to verbalize it to you. So fairness is very important. If you're not fair, it's not going to get uh, too far. It's an excellent point about the fairness. How would you suggest people can establish that fairness? Is it something that's stated at the beginning or is it like a give and take? Like you give me something, I'll give you something back. Like how does that work? Yeah, it could be negotiation by giving and taking. But the first thing when you're just getting into the table to sit, to negotiate or to communicate, uh, you have to ask, let's be fair to each other. Okay. I want you to be fair. I want you to be fair to me. Okay, if ever somebody is not respecting this proposition, let's us speak, you know. So that's how you get into the mind of the person that you want a win-win. And this is where they respect you more. Did you have another point on that subject? Because I have a question that I'm dying to ask you. Okay, go, go. <laughs> I guess that both Axel and I have been you know, throwing our hats in the ring in the recent market. And for buyers, it's very difficult and very competitive. And I guess, you know, my tendency to think is that there's a kind of a pattern of how transactions go now, which is that basically, you know, you try to overbid as much as you can to get the seller to talk to you. And then afterwards, you try to negotiate what you can through inspections and through, you know, whatever other means you have to bring the price down to something that you're comfortable with. And I have to say, and maybe this is also just, you know, my character and my perspective, like, I feel like when you're 20 people in line, really, it seems to me that it's only, you know, the money that talks or the numbers that talk. So maybe from your experience, you could like tell us how do you think in that multiple offer situation, how is there some sort of a negotiating tactic you can use? Whereas like I've always assumed it's just, well, if I put an extra, you know, 100K on the table, even if I end up clawing it back with negotiating after the fact, I don't know, maybe you could sort of speak to that a little bit. Yes, very good question, Terry. I do get that along since, you know, I'm fighting for my buyers too. And uh, we just closed a $12 million transaction. There were 16 offers on the table and we're the one who got in, you know, 
And from my perspective, from my experience, the way to get in is to be nice to people. It seems very basic, but if I'm the broker and I'm receiving 10 offers and you call me, Terry, you want to get your offer on top, right? Let's admit that. So you have to talk to me. What's important for my buyer? You can even go fishing. Is like $700,000 a fair price to your seller? I'll tell you, uh, you'll get a clear indication where we stand, you know, without me divulging the price to you. You know, so there is tactics like this that I use just to communicate better, try to understand, you know, and uh, by being nice, having a little laugh before you call, or I mean, at the first one you call, and then you discuss business. Some, sometimes it's a broker that you know, you can give him like good uh, tap on the shoulder, listen, oh, wow, you're so good. How do I get in? Like, what do I have to do? I'll do anything you want. I just want to get in, please, you know, and he's going to talk. He's going to talk. People talk. And when people talk, they, they give you valuable information. Absolutely. That's so much my experience. I'm, you know, I have more experience like with the tenants on that. And I'm always saying when you're screening tenants, just press on the play button because like you would not believe the stuff that people tell you. Exactly. And building on that, for the example that you just gave, Nick, like w- would it be reasonable for someone who's interested in submitting an offer even to invite you out for lunch and just kind of chat? And obviously most of the conversation isn't necessarily going to be about the deal, but it just helps to build a human rapport. You could, yes. If you have that chance, go for it. I mean, uh, some brokers wouldn't agree because they're too busy, but over the phone, it, it suffices. Even uh, sometimes for a triplex, triplex, you go for a visit first, right? So then you have your chance to talk to the broker or maybe call a broker that is good, that is know what it does. Let him handle the uh, communication with the other party. So to make sure that you get ahead in this transaction, some people from your academy, they're very good at verbalizing things, at getting what they want. But some other people might use like my services or another broker who is familiar with the field to get them, you know, on top of the pile in case of the offers. Is there anything we didn't have a chance to get to? I know I kind of cut you off with my question. Like, did you have some other sort of communication or soft tips for people? I have a few, yeah. So one of the most important thing, and, and, and you touched it a little bit, you know, how do I structure my offer? How do I negotiate after the inspection? You know, because you want to get your foot into the door. And I'm the first one who believes that you need to put the foot into the door in order to have that opportunity to connect because you're not considerate if your offer is not chosen, right? So you want to have a foot into the door. But at what price? Because this might just blow up in your face later on when you come up with a negotiation of $100,000 on a million-dollar deal, unless it's justified. Let's say you wanted to put 900000 for the property, but you're going a million just because you know you're going to cut it 100000 Most people will be offended by that. you know. So what I say is that the market is hot. You have to overpay a bit, right? So you have to work on yourself first. What is my maximum that I'm willing to pay? Okay. After that price, am I still a buyer? If you say no then you have your breaking point. Once you establish your breaking point for yourself, it's not worth overpaying 100000 for that property. You know it. And you know if you put more money into the offer right now when you negotiate later, chances are you're going to ruin your reputation if you are an active investor. If you do this, let's say, with me, and you come in $200,000 less than the asking price after you give me the full price, I might be, you know, a bit upset. You know, the seller might be upset. So just know your break-even. And offer slightly above the break even because there's always room for negotiation, you know, but if it's crazy money, chances are you're not going to be able to pull out. So yeah, breaking even point for yourself plus an extra cushion for negotiation for later on because there's always something in the building. You bring up an interesting point. Like the first part of the negotiation is obviously pretty much just on price. And so the increment sometimes is like, 
we go up or down 50,000, 100,000, and so on and so forth. And then both parties agree on a price. And then we start the due diligence. And then sometimes in the due diligence, and I'm sure you've experienced this dozens of times where you feel like the transaction is almost about to fall because in the due diligence, buyer and seller have disagreement for a $1,500 amount. And then they think they're going to drop the deal, whereas you used to drop like 25,000 at a time. And so it's just the ego that comes in of like, no, I want to win the negotiation. And so in situations like this, what's your way of like cooling people down because you're not about to lose a million dollar deal because of 1500 bucks exactly very good question it happened to me to a close friend of mine who wanted to not go ahead for five thousand dollars goes like i'm gonna stick to my price go like listen cool down a bit think it through look where we started and where we are right now how much profit are you looking to make in this transaction anyways you said three hundred thousand said three hundred thousand you got to trade this in for five thousand dollars are you crazy he goes like you're right and since now, he still thanks me for allowing that transaction to happen. It's to get back into the larger perspective. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this to satisfy yourself? Or is the $15,000 going to change anything in your life in five years? No, it's not going to change. So go ahead, buy the deal. You have yeah. to work your buyers. You know, sometimes the buyers I work with, I'm demanding a lot from them to work on themselves as well. Because most of the people, they're not used to not getting what they want entirely. But at a certain point, if you want to do a fair transaction, you have to let the other person win too, if you're still making money. I think, Nick, that's like super interesting because like we think of negotiation as really this external thing where it's all about, you know, dealing with the other party as if it's like a wall onto which you throw things. Yeah. But like ultimately part of it has to do with your own approach to things and working on yourself. So, you know, I know you already mentioned maybe having more of the macro perspective and also coming up with what your ceiling price is. Is there something else that buyers can do to work on themselves to like streamline the process a little bit more? On themselves, yes, they have to be transparent with the vendor and to themselves. You know, they have to have a strategy for this transaction. It's like a game of chess, you know, uh, you have to set the board. So your offer is setting the board, deviating from the board, from the strategy that you share with the seller, he's not going to be into that game anymore because there is too much unpredictability, too much time extension. If you're planning to resell the offer and you didn't tell the seller before, well, you might end up facing a wall when you find that guy who wants to buy that offer. So you have to find a way to communicate clearly, transparently, and no lies. That's very important. People, like a small lie would just crash a multi-million dollar transaction. I'm telling you, like, just small lies, they're like the worst. So. <laughs> I feel like we could like take that advice into like every other aspect of your life. Hey? Like, you know, how, how good is a small lie in a marriage? Not very oh my good. God. It's a small lie that crushes the big thing because why lying about small things? You're definitely hiding something. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So any other tips that you would have negotiating tips? The one that I use a lot, it's framing your demand. You know, when you want to ask something, if you come, let's say, Terry, you're selling a house and you know, I want to ask for $15,000 reduction after inspection, then there's two ways to do it. Either I call you or I tell you, listen, I'm not buying this unless you give me 15000 How are you going to react? You're probably going to say, well, listen, don't buy it. Ciao. Take a hike. Yeah, take a hike. <laughs> like you're not justifying anything. You're just asking. So framing the demand is that you have to show up with coffee to his place and tell him, listen, let me show you a few things that I have discovered. By the way, very nice building. I love it. I'm buying it. I have my financing in place. I have the banker coming in in two days. You know, you were going to go to the notary in one month. Are you happy with that? Yes. Okay. So let me show you what I have discovered about the property. The brick here, this, that, you know, it's an older place. Like you would understand that I need to put more money into this place than I have initially thought. So, you know, what are you willing to give me for this? You know, ask him first, like you just frame that you're closing this house 
maybe it's going to offer you more than you expected. How do you know? You didn't ask. And if he gives you less, we'll tell him, listen, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Your offer is very strong. However, at 15,000, it's really, really my minimum. Can we work it out? Chances are you're more advanced in this negotiation than initially, right? So good news first, then bad news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the compliment, the compliment sandwich, you know? <laughs> yes. Everybody loves compliments. <laughs> um, you said two points. So that was, I guess, the first one. Yeah. And there's another one is smile, all right? If you're only taking one thing away, just smile, okay? So if you're approaching a girl on the street and, you know, and you're not smiling, good luck, you know? If you're negotiating, <laughs> you know, actual, if you come to me, you know, with bad news, the first reaction I'm going to have is to smile and say, how do we fix it? Don't assume the deal is over. Don't assume you're just being shot. You know, you're not shot. It's emotions. Just cool down. There's always a way when there's a will. So just smile because people are thrown away with us. Oh, he's smiling. I just told him, like, I'm not selling. Like, this was a, a crazy negotiation once. We had a few million dollar building for sale. And the buyer, when they did an inspection, they wanted to have $200,000 less in the asking price. So I had to call my seller. I was representing both parties. I had to call my seller and tell him, listen, they want $200,000 on a recent construction. So you know what he told me? I'm not buying Nick. Cancel my mandate. I don't want to hear anything about them. So I said, listen, come on. Like we're here. It's not about them. It's about you. What do you want? He said, I want $50,000 more on the price. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere, but at least I didn't lose the mandate. The buyer tried to get the price, but at the end, you know, we kind of went back and we had a deal, you know, we had a deal. But just because I didn't react like I was shot in this, like, oh, go away. I don't want to hear anything with you. You know, I've been so long in communications. Uh, you, you cannot act like this. You're not allowed to act like this. You know, you could have been acted like a million ways, but just smiling, asking, okay, what makes you happy? Maybe there's still a solution that we can find together before we close the door. So, and I'm I'm just curious also, Nick, like you cited that you have a lot of experience, I guess, in dealing with people through your activities as a broker, but did you come by this knowledge in some other way? Like, did you, were there any courses that you take? Where did you get this approach? Because I feel like I, for one, might, <laughs> I could, I could take a feather from your hat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to share. So if, if you want to, if you want to grab a lunch, we could do that. I've read a lot of books, like honestly, a lot of uh, Grant Cardone stuff. I love Grant Cardone. I love uh, different books about negotiation, communication, PNL, like anything that gets you to communicate better and to understand the other person's perspective. And a lot of patience and always like more into like a, a listener guide than a talker. So I always like to listen to people first and then find solutions, find the emotions, the point that you can deal with to help them better understand you and understand themselves. Because let's admit it, a lot of the challenge comes from the other person not being able to process thoughts. So as a communicator, you have to be helping them process thoughts better in a way that makes it more productive, not to get lost in different things that don't have coherence. So co- coherence is important. But yet there is, is a lot of books, you know, it's yeah. just... If you had like a, a top three recommendations, maybe not right now, but maybe we could drop it in the comments after the show, because I know like I'm a real nerd for books. And so if you had like, like let's say you're, what are the top three books you recommend people read or the, or the top three resources? Like I'd definitely be a taker for that. Good. I'll think about that for sure. I'd I'll love to, to come see- up with something. Sorry, Nick, I'd love to see your list. And there is one, Terry, if, if I may, that I would recommend. It's called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And he's Amazing. an FBI, okay, so you know it as well, the, the FBI negotiator. That book Amazing. is fabulous. It's a game changer. Yeah. If everybody would be able to communicate like Chris Voss in his book, 
things are going to be so much simpler in relationship, in business relationship. It's just, it's very powerful. It's a good book. Yeah. Great. So from your vantage point at uh, PMML, we're always curious as investors to hear what's your assessment of what's going on in the market now? Like, I think we had a, obviously like a very hot spell during the last year of COVID. But do you, in what you see every day, do you see that continuing? Do you see things like calming down a little bit? What's your ear to the ground? Excellent question, Terry, because we see a lot of things going on right now. A new construction, we have used inventory. What I see a lot is that a lot of sellers, they're trying to put crazy prices on their properties, but it pushes the market up. So somebody who used to put a, a property at $200,000 per door six months ago, and I'm talking per door because it's fast to see how price and real estate are growing. So for somebody who used to do that before, it's becoming buying material because there's people pushing people's, uh, how should I say it? Expectations. Expectations. Thank you very much. That prices are still going up. So if I'm not buying at 200,000 a door, when I see listing come up at 250,000 a door, I'm going to miss out on the action. You know, you're probably not buying at the right price. And if you wait, you're not going to get that price anymore. So there is this thing that goes on with the market being hot and people that needs to buy, you know, they're willing to pay higher prices and it helps the market grow again. So I think the market is still growing. I don't expect, you know, the market crashing in the near future. I don't think it's going to happen in Canada. I just think we might reach a point where some real estate is going to stagnate because the prices are not increasing so fast. But at the same time, yeah, that's my perspective on it. I wonder, so I guess what I'm seeing sort of from the ground up is the rental market is very difficult right now. I feel like now that things have kind of begun to relax a little bit in terms of restrictions and in terms of migration, things are warming up a tiny bit. But I know that I have, you know, in, in my buildings and in the buildings I manage, higher vacancy rates than I think I've had in the last 10 years. One of the things that I wonder about is when I look at, you know, six months, one year in the future, what kind of pressure is that going to exert on the market? Like, on the price people are willing to pay for real estate because it's not just the vacancy. It's that basically that means the tenants have a bigger amount of the stick than they had when there was, you know, like the, the crise du logement, right? Like in that position, it's the owner who has the upper hand in a whole bunch of ways. Whereas like now you're kind of desperate. You don't want your tenants to leave. You're renting to people that you might not normally rent to because you're hungry. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I've heard that a lot too. And especially when we're talking about having difficulties renting units, are we talking about more recent units, more like optimized properties or any kind? Well, I mean, I guess like obviously renting at market value, okay. you know, like I guess I've seen the pattern that like bizarrely, a lot of rent control units in my portfolio and what the portfolio I manage have turned over this year. So in one sense, that's kind of good because it allows us to readjust the rents to market rate. But at the same time, like what I thought was market rate a year ago seems to not be market rate anymore. So very good question. You know, I'm not uh, into managing a lot of properties, but I hear people speaking and definitely takes more time to rent in certain mostly like popular areas, such as probably Ultramont, Ville Marie, you know, where there used to be a high concentration of students and uh, Airbnb. And now there is less of that. So definitely more empty units and they're high in the price. So people are certain times preferring to go, you know, exterior of Montreal or maybe in the suburbs, the price have exploded in the housing industry. In the suburbs too, there's so much growing on. So with the fact that you don't need to be at the office every day, maybe that's also another reason why. But long term, I think the price is going to go back. The people are going to go back in town because they want to enjoy a restaurant. They want to enjoy life. Some offices will open up. So to me, it's temporary in my book. Since about a year 
well, since really 18 months, we've heard a lot about like, oh, the in semi-commercial properties, the conversion of commercial to residential. And so obviously last year it was extremely relevant. And my question to you is now that things are reopening up a little bit, one, do you think it's still as relevant? And if landlords or owners want to keep a, sem- a commercial unit, what would you advise them to try to find as tenants, more of a professional or retail or what would you do? It's a good question, Axel. Uh, I don't do uh, a lot of commercial stuff, but I can say one thing that comes to my mind is that if you're able to convert the commercial into residential, just do it because of many reasons. The first one being that we're still in COVID. I don't know how, how long it's going to last and how fast the commercial is going to pick up. But if it does pick up, good for you. But I mean, in residential, the loan amount that you can get when your building is residential is highly more than commercial, right? Some banks right now, they're frightened to lend commercial. But this being said, you know, you definitely, in my book, are able to increase value of your real estate if you turn out residential because the amount of financing you're able to get on a property is directly related to its value. So the more money you can get on a property, the higher the value is. So in commercial, if you're only getting 65%, in some case, 50%, it's not the same value as in multi-residential. You're able to get 85% of its value. Yeah, and that's not even to mention the cost structure because I actually just uh, liquidated my last uh, semi-commercial asset this summer. And that was exactly it. Like when, you know, one aspect is the financing, but the other aspect is your cost structure. Because if you're in uh, semi-commercial, your taxes are going to be higher. You have to pay more hydro, like whatever. If you have to do any work, you have to get guys who have commercial cards. So it's like the whole cost structure of that project is completely different from residential. Absolutely. Absolutely, Terry. So do it if you can. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, I think that was uh, pretty much the questions I wanted to ask today. People who are watching this uh, broadcast live, if anybody has a question for Nick, now would be a good time to drop it in the comments section. It should pop up on my screen. Yeah, no, that was quite instructive. And in the meantime, before the questions come, like Nick, you mentioned it a few times and the thread in the negotiation is just kind of be nice, be genuine, be transparent and just kind of do what you said you were going to do. And usually it helps and smile. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, it looks like we don't have any audience questions today. So maybe we can just end up with Nick. Why don't you tell people how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, I think the best way is to uh, use a messenger app. Uh, Just hook me up on Facebook. I think it's the best or Instagram. And I'm available if you have any questions about anything that could work for you. Great. So definitely, I'm not the only one who wants your uh, top three recommendations. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay. Well, look, Nick, thanks so much for being with us today. And guys, audience members, don't hesitate to get in touch with him if you want to continue the conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Be well. Sure. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating. Leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.